Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Saif Amis, the writer of Bitcoin Standard. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Eric. It's uh, great to be with you on the show. Awesome. So one of the things I want to get into first is that a lot of the, the beginning of the book isn't even about Bitcoin. It's about history of money, sound money. And one of the things you do is you introduce yourself as a Austrian economist and say that that is you know, sort of a different branch of, of economics that's that's taught in schools. Can you outline the uh, philosophy of Austrian economics a little bit and compare it to the Keynesian and, and Friedman school of economics, which people typically believe is, as, as, you know, widely different schools of economics, but you believe is sort of rooted in a very similar tradition? What I would uh, describe the book is that, you know, it's, it's, it's on the issue of money, which I, um, you know, we're in school in the Austrian perspective. Now, I don't deny, of course, there are other perspectives, but uh, these other thoughts in many other places, and uh, they don't, um, you know, when you go to university, Keynesian perspective, you don't even hear about the Austrian perspective. So my book is heavily reliant on the Austrian perspective and in an uncompromising way. And, you know, I'm not trying to pretend that this is a balanced provision of all different perspectives. I think other perspectives have had enough textbooks written to explain their perspectives so you can uh, go read them. But this is how the Austrian school would look at the situation. And this comes from somebody who was into Austrian economics before they were into Bitcoin and only really came to understand Bitcoin through the lens of Austrian economics. And I would say, you know, after all these years, the way that Austrians have looked at Bitcoin has probably made more sense than any of the other schools. And, uh, you know, this is this is what the Austrian school would say about Bitcoin. So the first seven chapters of the book are essentially an Austrian perspective telling of the story of money. And then the final three chapters discuss Bitcoin as just a new technology for performing the functions of money as they were done with many other technologies in the past. What are the good things about it? What are the drawbacks to it? How it can uh, impact the world and so on. So uh, all of this to lead up to the second part of your question on the differences between the Austrian school and the Keynesian perspective. I'd say the way that I would put it is that, you know, the, the Austrian school was one of the main economic traditions in Europe leading up to World War One, It was really the Austrian school, the Swedish school, and then there was the British school. And, you know, their perspective on economics was considered one of the most important in the world, if not the most important by almost everybody. Everybody viewed them as one of the most important schools of thought. But then after the collapse of the Austrian Empire, after World War One, the rise of fascism in Europe, you know, school intellectually, in terms of having a headquarters where the professors and students would meet and new generations get trained, it ended its function effectively. It stopped being a, a functioning school and the scholars were distributed around the world. They immigrated and they uh, produced their own scholarship. And the tradition sort of died, but I would argue that it is really 
continuation of many different civilizations and generations of economic thought and scholarship. And what emerged after the death of the the Austrian school, the dominant school that basically took over the world is uh, the 1930s brand of uh, Keynesian, effectively, economics. I, I, I think Keynesian is the best way of describing it, even though many people don't like calling everything Keynesian. But that, in my opinion, is the best way of putting it, because it came about after the Great Depression, and it was essentially, it came to answer the question of what should the government do about the economy? And that's the fundamental difference between it and the Austrian tradition, which is effectively the tradition of many centuries of economic thought, which is simply studying economics itself and studying the laws of a human action, how humans act with one another under the context of scarcity, studying valuation, subjective valuation, all of these issues, and moving from all of these fields of scholarly inquiry into becoming a public policy science, into becoming a question of what should the government do about X, Y, or Z? And these being things like unemployment, inflation, um, everything. You know, at this point, anything becomes a question of public policy. And so economics, economics in the Keynesian tradition after the 1930s was a government-run educational system because you studied it from the perspective of the government trying to manage GDP, unemployment, achieving all sorts of different social objectives and so on. And that, that basically makes marginalizes the Austrian school and, the, in my opinion, the study of sound economics because it changes the question from being about what is economics to you know, just how do we get government to achieve. But then once you really get to understand the Austrian school and the Austrian uh, tradition, you realize that you know, market outcomes are things that emerge out of human action and human knowledge and people interacting with one another. And the essential things that are necessary for this to emerge in a way that is that serves the ends of the individuals that make it up is for the individuals to have the freedom to make their own choices about supply, demand, production, consumption, and so on. And that any attempt to enforce solutions top-down that might look like it uh, makes sense on paper because you can make some calculations that make it look like it achieves some sort of metric or the other, it doesn't really hold much validity in the real world because we're dealing with human beings and the knowledge that each individual has cannot really be known by a central planner or, or any kind of entity that tries to govern the market for any kind of benefit. And the difference is methodological and ideological as well in that tools that they use are different. They rely on mathematical calculation, whereas the Austrian school does not believe that mathematical calculation can, uh, you know, you can't just compare utilities. Utility is not something that you can put a price on. You can't um, create public policy based on calculating how much people value things numerically because value is always subjective. And so it's it's a big difference. And, you know, I make no, I don't hide the fact that I find the Austrian perspective much more convincing. And I do my best of trying to explain it in many contexts that are related to Bitcoin, that explain the fascination that somebody who's interested in Austrian economics would have with Bitcoin. And I also believe it helps explain, helps explain why Bitcoin has been around. 
and why it continues to succeed and why it continues to thrive, even though it's been written off so many times. Totally. That was a much longer answer than I expected. <laughs> that, was, that was great. Uh, and you, you, you read a lot in your book about, you, you, you covered the time where, where Austrian economics was, was dominant. And I'm, I'm curious, what was sort of the, the, the grounding for its, you know, for its, its diminishing, the intellectual grounding, if any? Because you also mentioned, you know, you cover quite a bit about this, this time where, where sound money was, was, was dominant, sort of the late 1800s, early 1900s, sort of this, you know, this, this you know, people saved more, thought longer term, we had a golden era of, of innovation, but then we, we went away from the gold standard leading up to World War One, and then it seems that, I don't know, half a dozen times since, uh, or maybe more, we had sort of a key pivotal turning point where, where the economy was, was struggling and we had an opportunity to, to go back to the gold standard, and instead we went further and further and further away from it until until going away from it completely. Maybe you can give a little bit of color or history to how these decisions evolved and, and what were the, I guess, mistakes? Were they blaming the gold standard when they should have been blaming government interference or or what were sort of the misconceptions? So I guess, I guess a good way of putting it would be, imagine you're writing a product review for a website and you buy this new laptop, you take a sledgehammer to it and then, you know, you try and... Uh, operate after you take the sledgehammer to it and then you write your review and you say this stupid piece of shit doesn't work this laptop is very shoddy it wouldn't even start i called customer customer support and they wouldn't help me you know one star out of five i wouldn't buy um you know taking you can't omit the fact that you took the sledgehammer to the laptop before you start complaining about the fact that it doesn't work so the gold standard arguably theoretically it was never really implemented in a completely pure way. You know, just like communists always say, well, so real socialism and real communism was not tried. They kind of are correct. It was not entirely tried, but we came pretty close. And the closest we went, the more starvation and suffering happened. In Cambodia, communist Russia, communist China. They didn't go all the way with communism, and that's why some of them survived. But when they came close, you know, it ended up with massive deaths and famines. And similarly, with the gold standard, we never had a complete gold standard. There was always, um, I mean, it's, so, it's, it's more of a theoretical idea, but the more closely we adhered to it, or the closer the economic situation was similar to it, then the less there was a possibility of a creation of money that is unbacked by actual value and saving and capital savings. The, the 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 more stable the economy was, and particularly towards the end of the 19th century, because after 1870, effectively the entire world was on the gold standard. After 19 after 1870, when Germany switched, the writing was on the wall. The price of silver crashed, and countries that were on silver started switching very quickly to gold, and even countries that were nominally on silver were still using maybe more gold in circulation. And eventually gold imposed itself, similar to what happened with over silver here in the U.S. in the 1800s and everywhere, effectively. So um, the point is that the gold standard stopped working when governments redeemed, uh, stopped the, redeeming, the redeemability of their notes in gold, effectively when they suspended the gold standard, you know, when they took the sledgehammer to it. That's the point where it stopped working. So as, a, as an economic system, you know, the gold standard is arguably the best thing that we had come up with. 
you tie, uh, you know, money emerges as gold in the market on its own. Left on its own, the free market will choose money as gold. And there are elaborate reasons for why that are explained in my, in my book. And so what a gold standard effectively does is that if you're going to have gold as money, people are going to benefit from the economies of scale of centralizing the gold reserves and then issuing paper notes backed by that gold. So either in the forms of uh, bills or uh, credit letters or checking accounts or all forms of all forms of payment that are backed by real gold. So there's just always going to be economies of scale from switching to that kind of uh, model over time. And so that leads to the centralization of gold and eventually, you know, within each city and then each city's as the city started to trade more with the cities next to it, they would centralize their reserves and then effectively in the capital city of the entire country. And so the gold standard became a system of bank intermediated settlement. And then that centralization allowed government to have a lot of control over it. And so it led to it being a heavily government controlled sector. And if you think about it, you know, central banking is one of the most government influenced sectors in pretty much every economy these days, you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's very rare that we have free market central banks. We don't, we have a government monopoly everywhere, you know, other kinds of things, you know, electricity or water or trash, there is more variation and some places will have it private. Others will have it public, but pretty much everywhere has a public central bank or at least until Bitcoin showed up. So the the problem with gold was that this centralization allowed government to take it over. And then in 1914, what happened was that because war broke out, all of the central banks now, since they had all of the government, since they had a central bank handy, they found it easy to just start printing more money, not backed by the gold. And because there's a war, we can just tell people, you know, it's a state of propaganda. It's a state of war mm-hmm. and we won't let speculators come and drain the gold from our reserves. And this is, you know, this is standard operating procedure for uh, countries that go into war. They do this stuff all the time. They try and take use of it. But in 1914, pretty much everywhere was using the gold uh, standard. And so everywhere was heavily centralized in terms of the gold reserves. And so during that period, government took over central banking or influenced central banking to lead towards more money printing. And that's what allowed World War I to continue for a very long time. You know, people talk about World War I as, you know, the, the meaningless war, the pointless war. There's really no good reason for why that assassination would snowball into four years of global carnage. But the reason is that every country at that point had had an easy way of inflating its way into war. That's really the key thing. Uh, since then, you know, it's been a it's been a wild ride of governments having discovered this uh, addiction to uh, printing money to finance themselves, to do everything from war to uh, any anything else. And um, people think of it as just being a normal. Uh, state of affairs and modern political science certainly talks about it like that. But I think his, historically speaking, this is quite an anomaly. And I think it's only natural that the free market is going to come up for solutions for something like this. And that's what Bitcoin effectively is. It's, it's a choice for people to opt out of the modern nation state with all of its 
you know, hefty bill that it sends you at the, at the end of every year in the form of inflation. When you read Milton Friedman, is it sort of shocking that someone who, you know, sort of as self-proclaimed capitalist as he is, even he still believes in the, that, you know, government should, should shape money supply and monetary policy? Does it sort of show how, like, insidiously deep this belief is that, that government should shape monetary policy that even self-proclaimed extreme capitalists think it's so? Yeah, it is quite interesting, actually, because, you know, you would expect that from the perspective of the libertarian like Milton Friedman, he would, uh, I mean, he, he did. In, in many of his interviews, he spoke about replacing the Fed with a computer software. But uh, I think, he, you know, he, he paid some lip service to that in his more public appearances. And uh, but if you look at his actual scholarly work, it was almost always coming at it from the perspective of what should the government do best about this? You know, even if it is go- the government uh, imposes a new algorithm that handles the money supply, it's still the government that's writing the code. And I think the, the issue is that if you think about his perspective on gold, he thought that imposing the gold standard is a form of economic central planning, that the government is choosing then the money for society. And to an extent that is correct, but that is an argument against the government controlling the gold standard or having any sort of monopoly on the gold standard. But it's not an argument against gold itself, because gold's emergence as a money is happens on the market. It doesn't happen because of government decree. It's a very important point. And the huge difference in understanding uh, money between the Austrian school and the others. And so Friedman is against gold as a money because he said, well, it's too expensive to produce and it's a form of central planning. Those were his two most notable criticisms of the gold standard. But of course, the fact that it is expensive to produce is why it is gold. It is money because gold mining has historically always been a loser's trade and a loser's job. And it's 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 a, it's a job that's been reviled throughout history and throughout cultures because it is kind of antisocial because everybody else the way they make their gold is that they serve everybody else they do something useful you know you build a house or you make a car or you give people uh, classes of something you do something useful and they pay you in gold but then some others just go and dig in godforsaken places to make gold without helping anybody else and it's generally not profitable and that's why it ends up being it ends up being so uh, so rare in society that few people do it and everybody else is busy working that's really the advantage of it as opposed to easy government money which uh, you know it seems like it's cheaper to make but because it's cheaper to make you have people spending so much time and effort trying to influence government to make more and more of it that's the comparison that you should be making between them Right. So I think you know a, a more a more a more critical uh, and free market perspective, a more consistent free market perspective on the issue of money. I think you, you would have to look at somebody like Murray Rothbard to get a good idea of. Murray Rothbard has written several books on money that I think have stood the best the test of time better than uh, Friedman's writings. I, I would say. say totally. And we'll put them in the in the show notes. The question I have for you is: you you mentioned that the vulnerability with with gold was that clearance needed to be centralized. Was there anything, was that a necessity? Was there anything that could have been different? And I'm curious if you have the same concerns with, or will, this, will the same happen to Bitcoin, of the different layers of, of Bitcoin? Will, will any layers of, of that become centralized? And is Bitcoin susceptible to gold's fate? And, and perhaps you could lead that into a comparison between Bitcoin and gold. Do you like to use the Napster analogy? Yeah, I mean, I think this this is really a good uh, a, a, a good uh, 
a way to to zero in on the main point in my book, I would say, about the idea of the, what the gold standard is, what the Bitcoin standard is, is that it's a more decentralized version of the gold standard. In other words, the gold standard works fine, as we said, but it is susceptible to that sledgehammer. With Bitcoin, <laughs> we've managed to make a laptop that even the person who would take a sledgehammer to cannot ruin effectively because it's impervious to sledgehammers. That's really the, the way it works. And the, the, the point with gold is that, you know, mo- moving physical gold around is no joke. It's, it's uh, highly insecure, uh, you know, so it requires heavy security expenditure and it requires uh, a lot of insurance and shipping costs. And so it was just natural that after a while, as the scope of trade with gold would grow, the amount of second layer transactions you want, if you want, you know, papers moving around and banks netting with one another and then settling at the end of the day or the week or the month became larger and larger. And so effectively, that centralization gave the banking system an extreme amount of privilege, an extreme value, which they could capitalize on by effectively increasing the money supply beyond the quantity of gold because you know that it's just if, if you're a monopoly and you're performing a service that's this valuable you know you're introducing a new form of or you're amplifying the benefits of this form of money you know that's worth something so even the capital market of the bank itself the reputation of it and the fact that it's able to generate an enormous revenue from this operation effectively increases its worth and so allows it to issue more liabilities on itself in, a, in what effectively becomes a fractional reserve system. The, the whole point of my book is to say that Bitcoin has a better chance of avoiding that precisely because, economically speaking, it has a more distributed nature in terms of its clearance than gold. With gold, you're going to tend towards one global central bank that eventually, or at least a few global central banks that uh, move gold around between one another. But the idea of ships of gold going back and forth every day between, say, the U.S. and Europe and uh, the U.S. and China, I think is, is, is not very practical, right? There will be a high level of centralization of that. Well, with Bitcoin, we already have a system that can do the same thing as a gold transfer, except that the gold is not physical, it's digital. But it's exactly as final as a gold transfer. And that's a very key point. You know, the, the finality of the transactions, what separates gold clearance from other kinds of clearance. Uh, so th- that's why, you know, when the German central bank requested its gold back a few years ago from the U.S., it took them a couple of years and several million dollars to move it around. Well, this is the kind of transaction that Bitcoin does in under one hour with uh, at this point, something like five cents or ten cents or maybe one dollar. You know, at its highest, it was like five dollars. And Bitcoin can already do half a million of these. So if you think about it, you know, just mathematically thinking about it in terms of how many of these transactions you could have between how many banks are able to do it. You know, at current capacity, with half a million transactions a day you would be able to have a central banking network of 1,000 banks around the world able to each one of them offer final payment settlement between it and all the other banks every single day, right? So you would replace the central banking system around, developed around gold and then governments 
that handled central banks, which had, you know, at its best, a few banks, but really now it functions with only one central bank because pretty much everywhere is connected to the U.S. Federal Reserve. And, you know, the U.S. can stop any payment anywhere in the world from taking place because pretty much everything runs through the U.S. SWIFT network and the Federal Reserve. So effectively, this current system, which relies on government clearance and approval by government and government money, that kind of system is fundamentally going to scale in a way that centralizes itself towards one bank or at least a few banks. But with Bitcoin, you can have a thousand banks around the world, each one of them do it, even with current, you know, even just with the best that we've seen so far, or although with more demand on Bitcoin and with more improvements and efficiency tweaks and you know with technology that is already proven that we see happening right now which is coin join for instance things like coin join and a few different additions here and there we can be sure that bitcoin is going to be able to do much more than the current half a million that we've seen it do over the last few months it will be able to do possibly a few million which means that the number of banks that then can be accommodated increases massively so you can talk about a system where instead of central banking being a few central banks in the world allowing governments around the world a massive amount of power from printing money, you have thousands of banks that are able to perform final settlement, and yet none of them is able to control the money supply. And this is growing right now on the internet as a viable alternative to central banking in a, in a, in a truly functional way. You know, If you want to send money around the world, you have two options right now. One is to go through the banking system in the U.S. central banks or through Bitcoin. That's the only other option out there. It's, you know, it's viable. It works. It sends money anywhere across the world. And it's, it's, it's been functioning well so far. So I think it's becoming more and more of a serious alternative. And the interesting thing about it is that, as I said, it's kind of sledgehammer proof. Because as these banks grow, you know, it's possible to shut one down, it's possible to shut many down, but it's highly unlikely that you're able to shut them all down, that you're going to stop the whole thing from functioning. It doesn't really look likely that you would see this happen. It's a nice segue. Say, say more into your sort of vision for the end game of Bitcoin and the evolution, uh, the steps it needs to take to get there. I'm curious if, if that differs from the view of, you know, Bitcoin you know, sort of maximalism consensus. And then also curious broadly, like who is Bitcoin, you know, competing with or, or replacing? Is it, is it gold? Is it fiat? Is it central banks? Is it the federal reserve? Is it all of the above? The way that I would put that, I think in a, in a strict functional sense, Bitcoin as a form of money or as a form of currency is in competition with gold, the U S dollar, the Euro, the British pound, Japanese yen, and the Swiss franc, these last three a little bit less, and maybe the Chinese yuan, in being an international settlement currency. So these are the only ways that you can send value across the world. You can send gold, which is you know physical and bulky and expensive to move around, or you could send database entries at your local uh, government central bank complex, particularly if it is from the currencies that are used for international trade. So the dollar and euro and a few others here and there. So these are the only currencies that can be used for international settlement. And Bitcoin is the only new alternative that we've seen. You could possibly also add the IMF standard drawing rights, uh, which are sort of like an analog Bitcoin 
that is controlled by the IMF, which is in turn controlled by the uh, U.S. government, more or less. It's uh, yeah, you can read more about it. I'm not going to waste more time explaining it. It's kind of a silly idea. So this is Bitcoin's uh, main competition. Now, in terms of how I see it evolving, I I have to say uh, my book is not clear about this because you know I'm not here to make predictions about the future, and I'm not saying you know it's going to unfold in a certain way. And this is. As Austrian economists would say, you know, prediction in the matters of a human action is not ever uh, really, you can never really count on it as being reliable. You, you can't systematize um, human action into mathematical equations that give you precise outcomes. So I have no idea, you know, how Bitcoin is going to unfold. And there is, but I think there is a temptation to sometimes maybe try and um, um, over-sensationalize how it might happen. That Whereas... It might be rather boring and mundane in terms of it just imposing itself as a growing economic reality day by day over time. And I guess, you know, you could think about the the switch from people reading newspapers to reading reading websites and blogs. You know, it happened over time and newspapers, some of them closed down, some of them switched. Journalists who worked in them uh, learned to use the web and write in the web. It was, you know, other people found jobs in journalism that wouldn't have otherwise, and people in journalism found jobs in other things. You know, it's a long, drawn-out market adjustment process, which, you know, in um, we these things get sensationalized a lot in. Um, in politics and in media, because you know the people who are hurt from them will try and uh, organize to get special benefits in terms of, say, tariffs or benefits or whatever. But the markets are pretty efficient about conducting these. So possibly, you know, it might uh, it might not be so uh, drastic. I think it, I I don't think that governments are going to adopt uh, Bitcoin. And I I mean I would I I would not. I wouldn't say it's it's probable. Like I'm not saying it won't happen. I don't know, but I think Bitcoin is not going to grow because one day some government is going to use it as reserves. Because I think just governments are both quickly and in terms of self-interest far too invested in the current uh, mental framework of how to understand economics that they're not going to get Bitcoin and they're not going to believe that they should use this thing as a central bank asset and reserve. I I don't see this being likely, and I alternatively I think the Bitcoin standard is going to grow as a uh, purely free market monetary system. You know, governments are going to shun Bitcoin. They're not going to ban it because they realize they can't ban it, and I think they're also not going to ban it because individuals in government are going to recognize the value in it for themselves and they're going to be using it extensively and so they're not going to, they're not going to be inclined to ban it they will turn a blind eye to it in most countries obviously some countries might try stupid ideas like you know banning it many countries try to ban the internet and you know uh, the internet seems to be doing just fine but they don't seem to be so I, you know, maybe some will ban it but I think the majority will turn a blind eye to it and I think it's just going to continue to grow and the people who enter it or who join it are effectively going to be benefiting immensely from moving to this more advanced civilization infrastructure or more advanced monetary system, if you want, futuristic monetary system, 
And the, the people left behind are just going to eventually start realizing it more and more, and so they'll start switching. Sometimes people like to think of it as, you know, it'll be hyperinflation and the dollar will collapse, which, uh, it's, uh, you know, is uh, tempting for many people to just imagine these things and tell you to stock up on supplies. But I think a better metaphor might be the situations of hyperinflation like Weimar Republic, but rather situations of dollarization in countries that have had, that have had the terrible currencies and then switched to the dollar. So, for instance, when Ecuador switched to the dollar, you know, the, them switching to the dollar was a good thing. It, it was a huge improvement for them. You know, the next day after they switched to the dollar, life got better in Ecuador because before that, your currency was dropping by 80% per day or something like that. Um, and, you know, life and economy was all in complete disruption. The moment that they switched to the dollar, everything becomes much better, you know? I think that's a better way of thinking about it. You know, the current economic system is probably going to continue to stutter along and create problems. But uh, the Bitcoin economic system, I think, is just going to grow independently of governments. Possibly. I don't know. I'm not. I'm just, you know, uh, looking at how trends are currently going and extrapolating. But obviously, a lot of things can happen that are different. But uh, this is how I'm leaning now. Totally. I'm curious to hear your perspective on why uh, it seems Silicon Valley has been so, uh, where I sit right now, incorrect in its uh, in its assessment of cryptocurrency. Now, in two ways, N- now there's sort of the um, the fascination of you know the the world computer use case, sort of a you know platform for decentralized applications, and you know making a lot more comparisons to the history of the of the internet and this is the web, next evolution of the of the web than the you know next evolution of money. Um, so I'm curious where you think that view is incorrect. And then even you know even Mark Andreessen who, who saw the money use case and wrote this piece in 1914, but really focused on you know frictionless borderless payments, micro transactions, no fees, not on international settlement layer. So where were both of those perspectives incorrect in your view? So with the second perspective, I think it's uh, pretty transparent. This is something that you know a lot of the Bitcoin noobs um, make the mistake of, and I and I. At some point, I used to think that uh, initially you think that Bitcoin is just going to function at zero uh, transaction cost and instantaneous transactions. But then you understand, oh, wait, there's a thing called blocks and confirmation. And it actually takes 10 minutes usually per confirmation. And you want to wait a few confirmations, ideally six. Oh, wait, that's not exactly instant. So, And then you realize, oh, and the minor reward continues to shrink and then it goes to zero so obviously this transaction fee thing is going to be sticking around so hang on we have a market in transaction fees so yeah that was a big mistake that a lot of people uh, make initially because there is the temptation for this just i think it's maybe futuristic too much futuristic thinking and too much sci-fi that people just want to believe that the next thing has to be everything they had expected from money. You know, it has to be instant and free, you know, just ticks all the boxes. And the reality is, you know, it doesn't work like that. But that's not the value proposition as we've come to discover over time. The value proposition is settlement finality in under an hour. It's not instantaneous settlement, but, you know, instantaneous settlement is not, there's nothing faster than Bitcoin in terms of instantaneous settlement. Uh, Nothing really is instantaneous except in-person transactions. So that's one part. But the other part is, I I think this one is over. Pretty much everybody's gotten over this at this point. Uh, People recognize that uh, 
Bitcoin transactions are extremely high security. You know, Bitcoin has processed so many transactions and still not processed one fraudulent transaction yet. So people recognize these are very high transactions and the fact that people will pay a transaction fee for them is normal, natural, and good. That's how the system stays secure. That's how miners spend all that much money on making Bitcoin hard money, you know, so that nobody can just print a bunch of Bitcoin. So that I think is fine. Everybody recognizes it. But the real problem is the fascination with all the buzzwords around all of these projects that hang around Bitcoin pretending to be the next big thing, which we've been seeing since the beginning of Bitcoin, effectively. And it's just the same story always. And it always ends in the same sad way. But every brand, every generation of newcomers have to get um, distracted by it. It's just because it's such a new thing. I mean, the amount of knowledge that you need to learn in order to get into Bitcoin and understand what's going on is enormous for anyone. And nobody comes into Bitcoin with the kind of background that allows you to know all of these things and understand them well. So it's normal that you need to learn a lot of things, and it's normal that in that kind of period, you're pretty susceptible to not knowing uh, what's going on. And so a lot of people have preyed on this in terms of being able to launch their own coins and pretending, you know, we're going to be faster, better, stronger, whatever adjective you want. But uh, in my opinion, and in what my book describes, is that you know none of these things really matter for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not about fast or uh, instant or free or implementing a smart contract or any of these things. Bitcoin and the technology behind it is just an extremely elaborate structure that allows us to solve a problem, an engineering problem. It's like a jewelry rig, you know. It's it's a it's it's a it's a fix and a workaround and a complicated machine whose aim is to produce a system for a third party being able to stop of you and it works for what it does but after you know after being in this field for a very long time i've put my neck out a few years ago and said bitcoin only uh, the, this whole blockchain technology only works for bitcoin and it's gotten me a lot of mockery on twitter and everywhere and everybody has, you know every new generation of new over the last three years who first comes in the, into Bitcoin or blockchain stuff, you know, they discover me saying something like this and they come at me with all of their 1990s internet analogies or <laughs> no, but Bitcoin is AOL and <laughs> my space is, uh, I don't know, Ethereum, you know, this, this line of reasoning from analogy, it's quite astonishing. I think it's too much sci-fi and too much reason, reasoning for analogy that everybody wants everything to do everything that they've ever read in a sci-fi novel. And everybody is not capable of reasoning beyond just an analogy. You know, people think just bringing up Netscape or <laughs> Internet Explorer or AOL or MySpace or Facebook and combining them to th two things that happen today is like checkmate in terms of arguing. So um, I think this is really what it comes down to. People think of Bitcoin as a product. People, that's another major issue, which is, you know, in the culture of we've had Google, we've had all these different brands, Facebook, and it was only natural that if you think Bitcoin is a brand, just like Google or Facebook or Pepsi or Coca-Cola, then if it's Pepsi, it's going to have its Coca-Cola. If it's McDonald's, it's going to have its Burger King. But, you know, we have the Internet and the Internet doesn't have Mac other thing that competes with it. It's, it's a protocol. And. Effectively, 
Bitcoin was the first protocol that functioned, and it functioned because it was neutral and because nobody controlled it, and it grew while nobody controls it. So it does its job, and nobody has been able to control it. So there's absolutely no reason for you to try and engineer something, you know, put your name out there and say, hi, I'm going to make a new protocol that nobody controls. It's going to be better at not being controlled by anybody. Nobody's trying to sell you that, right? Because the only reason they're making their coin is that they stay in charge of it and they continue to make seniorage effectively, make profit from printing the money. So, you know, I think it's just reasoning from analogy has led people down this path. But I've put my neck out and I've said, this is Bitcoin is just a highly sophisticated tool that does this one exact job, which is Bitcoin and it works. And, you know, either Bitcoin works or it doesn't. But that doesn't mean that anybody who copies this technique can come and tell us, you know, I've invented Bitcoin 2.0. You know, you're not Bitcoin 2.0 just because you copied it. You don't copy its immutability just by copying the code. And that's what all these other coins miss. And then all these other uses that people want to attach to blockchain, I humbly submit the thesis that none of them actually matter. Even privacy? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, yeah, you look at the implementations for privacy. I mean, the, the currencies that try and do it, I think, do a pretty uh, bad job of it. And I think the point remains that if you want to try privacy, the worst thing you could begin with is to put your transaction records on something like a blockchain. I mean, it's uh, this is something that I mentioned in the book. It's Bitcoin and the blockchain, this kind of structure, is ideally suited for not being crime money. If you have something you want to hide, it's really, really not good OPSEC to have the transaction listed in front of you know thousands and thousands of computers all over the world for them to record that transaction and keep it on an immutable ledger. People who are selling the idea that you can have privacy on the blockchain, I think, are being reckless, put it mildly. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made from speculating on those things, but the key point is this. Unless you're one of the world's top maybe 10 experts on cryptography and computer security and blockchain and Bitcoin, then you probably shouldn't take at face value any cryptocurrency that tells you, hey, come and do your crime here. <laughs> we are safe. You know, you have them on their website advertising that we are safe. You know, how how likely are you to be compromised through something like this? I would not trust something like this. I don't conduct criminal activity, but if I did, I would definitely make sure that I would not record it on a ledger of millions of people, uh, accessible to millions of people instantaneously around the world. It's It's, it's an extremely high risk to take operationally. And so, I, I and and it's and here's the other thing, it's an utterly trivial solution to have once you have second layer trusted, not trusted, but I mean second layer payment solutions that work on Bitcoin. So especially things like CoinJoin, and in fact also you know the reality is you know you can have private transactions on Bitcoin if you really want to, if you really understand what you're doing, if you're one of those ten people or maybe more, you know you can probably get away with being able to hide your transactions on Bitcoin, but very few people can really know whether they know this for sure. And, you know, it depends also on how good the others are at looking for you. So 
um, as as the size of the Bitcoin liquidity pool grows and the number of people using Bitcoin grows, and the scaling solutions for Bitcoin are introduced, including things like CoinJoin that allow multiple addresses as input and output, you'll be able to get your privacy on Bitcoin, and especially with things like Lightning. You know, as Lightning increases. Uh, and, and the use of lightning increases privacy becomes becomes an extremely easy thing to implement I think on Bitcoin it becomes far easier because you are clearing the transactions without having to register them on the main chain and that's the key thing so for me the idea of going for privacy on chain I think is unworkable because I don't think it's very wise for people to be trusting it in at the first place and therefore I don't see the liquidity for these currencies growing beyond their use case as a speculation instrument uh, I don't see them growing and used anything like Bitcoin. And also, of course, because they're hampered, uh, all of them. Well, I wouldn't say all of them, but I mean, I think Monero and Zcash in particular are hampered by by their very large block sizes. They have to have very large transaction sizes. They have to have large transactions in order to try and make it anonymous. So it's not really a technology that's easy to scale. And the point is that without scale, it, it becomes quite risky regardless of the technical side, simply because carrying one of these currencies just automatically makes you a suspect, you know? The, the more people use those things, the more liquidity you have, the easier it is to uh, hide in the crowd. But the smaller the liquidity, the uh, harder effectively it is. And that's why I think it's uh, then that's kind of uh, yeah the way that I see it is privacy is is going to be implemented on second layer solutions not first layer solutions. And I'm I'm curious to get into sort of what the world looks like in a in a Bitcoin reserve world uh, and maybe we could start with how you see free banking or fractional reserve banking playing out or not playing out. In short, I think people uh, will try it, but I don't think it will work. Effectively, I think in a system like Bitcoin. Because of the decentralized nature of Bitcoin and because of the fact that the final ledger for Bitcoin settlement is public and open for people to access at effectively almost zero cost, the ability of banks to uh, borrow short and lend long, the ability of them to roll over maturity or the ability of them to have mismatches in their uh, reserves, I think is it, it is going to be hampered significantly. And I fa- in fact, I think you know, as a bank, if you do something like this, your your notes will be discounted at the percentage at which you discount your backing by Bitcoin. So effectively, this is, I think, how the market is going to correct for it. So if your bank is engaging in um, fractional reserve banking and therefore issuing more notes and more liabilities, without anybody figuring it out or anybody consciously knowing it, the market on its own will lead to the price of your notes and your liabilities and your obligations to drop on the market by 50%. And so it's um, it's going to cause firms that do this, it's going to cause them uh, liquidity problems. And in a world with a lender of last resort, that's really the key point. Without a lender of last resort, fractional reserve banking is unstable. It's not going to work. It could work for a year or two three, maybe five, maybe 10, but it won't work. Eventually, it'll come falling down because there there will come a point at which the liquidity needs of the bank will be too expensive to roll over on the market, too expensive to find on the market. And the banks, 
liquidity problems in a in a fractional reserve banking system without a lender of last resort a liquidity problem is a solvency problem there's no difference you know they'll be the same there's if you if you have liquidity problems then you know you can't and you can't roll over your short-term debt to cover long-term uh, obligations then um, you're going to be insolvent so I think it's, it's it's highly unlikely that something like this will emerge. It, I think the emergence of it on a gold standard was due to the fact that, because, as I was saying earlier, because gold is centralized and banks do an enormous amount of uh, transactions in gold, they were effectively extremely valuable in what they uh, were offering. And because they had monopolies, they could impose these kinds of effectively seniorage by issuing reserves that are unbacked by gold. And... It was possibly sustainable to keep this going for a while because it was expensive for people to have a way to audit the bank, and it was expensive for people to go to an alternative. In, in other words, you know, you have one bank in the town, and you have to deal with it, or two banks, and you know, if if they're both doing a little bit of uh, fractional reserve banking, you know, you don't really have much options. The banks effectively have a natural monopoly or a duopoly. Because of the centralization of the reserves, you know, because the reserves will tend to be towards one building, whether on the town scale or the government scale. Because of that, I think, you know, banks could always get away with this degree. But what Bitcoin does is that it transforms central banking effectively as a, as a uh, business from being a centralized model because it has to rely on moving gold bars around into being a decentralized model that is verified by processing power and electricity it automates it it's a beautiful thing if you think about it it's just like how we took out the horse and all of the horse shit from our street by getting rid of the horse and the horse carriage we take out central banks and governments and all of their shit from the managing and running of money it's amazing instead we, you know we just burn electricity we run all these massive farms on hydroelectric dams all over the world harnessing energy towards running these miners, towards registering one block, 10 minutes. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible increase in efficiency. And so in that sense, I think it'll be extremely hard for a Bitcoin bank, I think, to have a value proposition that allows it to get away with any kind of uh, maturity mismatch on capital markets. Maybe. Maybe I could be wrong. Maybe. Then introduce it. But I think Bitcoin is open source, and fundamentally, all of the code of Bitcoin is open source. It's available online. And so, I, I mean, I'm sure people will make developments, but being that the thing doesn't have much physical infrastructure, being that it's all software, it's going to be, I think, a much more open source friendly community. And software on Bitcoin is going to grow and be widely distributed. So, I doubt, you know, somebody's going to be able to have some sort of critical infrastructure around Bitcoin that allows them to get away with mismatching their maturities and getting away with it in a market without a lender of last resort. That's, I think, the key. Right. I'm curious to talk more about, you know, what happens when an incumbent unit of account is replaced by, by something like, like Bitcoin. Like, what does that world look like? How much harder... If at all, is it to get a credit line? You know, what about the debt? Is there like a debt jubilee? What happens there? You think? Oh, 
I don't know. Let me just be clear. Nobody knows. We have no idea. We've never had anything like Bitcoin before. And <laughs> making prognostications is not, it's beyond my pay grade. It's, um, I, nobody really knows how any of these things are going to pan out. But in terms of the credit markets, I think, let me just pick on that. I think the difference is because of the absence of fractional reserve banking. I think the difference is that in a Bitcoin world, capital will be hard. And just like money is hard, capital is going to be hard. In other words, if you want to borrow money, buy a house or start a business or for anything, somebody has to save that money and they have to sign a contract by which they save it for the entire period that you want that money yourself. You know, it'll be maturity matched full reserve banking in terms of reserves and in terms of capital reserves. And therefore, that means that every cent of investment will have to come from a cent of saving. And people think that that's a horrible thing. But of course, that's a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. That's how any economy functions and thrives. And it's how any society has become um, developed effectively through having banking systems that were close to this as much as possible. Well, actually, that, that's probably inaccurate. Many have had uh, quite dysfunctional systems. But in any case, it's, uh, it's because, you know, what that does is that it creates a real market in capital. And that's the thing that people miss. That's why it's quite amazing that in our microeconomics textbook, we go over the uh, and macroeconomics textbook, we go over the markets in the economy. And then when it comes to the capital market, suddenly we throw away the supply and the demand curves. We stop talking about them, really. And we just start, start talking about Fed policy, you know, because government just replaces markets in, 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 in that sector of the economy. And the textbook sets you up for understanding that. But, you know, the laws of economics don't start don't stop functioning because government just said that they, they should stop functioning in that sector. Capital is just a market good like any other. There's supply and there's demand. Supply comes from people who save. Demand comes from people who borrow. So you want to borrow my uh, savings. And the higher the interest rate, the more people are incentivized to save. And then that leads to people saving more and more. And effectively, the longer that you have a free market in it, the more people are incentivized to save more and the lower the interest rate drops. In fact, the history of human civilization has been the history of lowering the interest rate. So that by the turn of the 20th century, interest rates were down to about 2-3%, the lowest level of interest rate. And that was you know, another way in which we can understand this as uh, at that period as the peak of human civilization. You know, interest rates were low, and they were low because people were saving a lot. And people were saving a lot because people were future-oriented. People thought about the future. So you have this low interest rate environment emerge, not like we have it today by the decree of a government, which is exactly as futile and as ridiculous as a government passing a degree, decree that says everybody in our country should be able to eat an apple for one cent. You know, that just doesn't make it so. We've had laws and we've seen what happens when governments try and control prices everywhere this has been tried. It's led to disaster, whether you're talking about the Eastern European countries or anywhere in the world that has had price controls, things fall apart. And capital markets are exactly like that. This is why you get recessions and unemployment and inflation. That's what's called Austrian business cycle theory. And I get into that at length in my book. If you think about a free market in capital, I think it would be a wonderful thing. It would lead to far more capital accumulation. 
and it would lead to much longer time horizons in a society and i think it would it would increase productivity and uh, prosperity heavily around the world caitlin long recently had this i guess concerns about rehypothecation or unbacked derivatives on top of on top of bitcoin or just potential risks of of ice whereby they take bitcoin deposits and then engage in uninhibited fractional reserve lending have you are you familiar with these concerns yeah, the way that I see it is that fractional reserve banking and um, any kind of rehypothecation of unbacked Bitcoin, any kind of the creation of Bitcoin that's not backed by real Bitcoin, the way that I see it is that it's a losing proposition on the market. So I think people can use it, can, can try it. I think they might be optimistic that they can get away with it, but I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt they'll get away with it. And I think. You know, something tells me perhaps really Wall Street might really only come to appreciate and understand what Bitcoin really means when some major hedge fund or bank goes belly up trying to play stupid games with Bitcoin. <laughs> because I think it's, it's going to be quite different than other assets that can be manipulated with fiat money, with government money, by entities that have government guarantees in fiat money. And fundamentally, markets are quite liquid, stuff is liquid, and if you've got a money printer, you can run any market and manipulate it. And in particular, you know, people bring up gold, and there are all these theories about gold manipulation, and that the uh, futures market is used to manipulate gold. And for me, I think that sort of misses the point. The real way in which gold is manipulated is that central banks still hold an enormous quantity of gold. And this is a point that people keep forgetting. People don't know this, but you know the amount of gold held in global central banks today is many times larger than the amount of gold that was held in central banks under the gold standard. Under the gold standard, there was gold in central banks, but you know there was a lot more gold in people's hands and in people's private banks. It was a currency that was being used in the real world. But what happened with what people think of as you know gold being demonetized it hasn't actually been demonetized it's held largely by central banks central banks still hold about a sixth of global gold reserves so that's really why effectively they control the gold market is because they don't you know i, th- I think whatever people think of as manipulation is just a natural outcome of banks betting on the fact that central banks have this ability to hold gold in large quantities, and they have this large reserve of gold that they can uh, use to prevent gold from rising too much and destroying their currencies or dropping the value of their currencies. So central banks are able to sell their gold, and they have been selling their gold when needed in these markets to stabilize the gold market. The difference is, I think, with Bitcoin is that uh, Bitcoin, as we were saying, Bitcoin settlements are distributed. So I find it harder to compromise in terms of people being able to take it over. So if they wanted to have a big chunk of Bitcoin, they'd need to buy it on the market. And if they try to buy it on the market, they would raise the price significantly. And then if you buy it on the market and raise the price significantly and you try and manipulate the market after you've bought, you know, you can succeed in manipulating the market only as far down as the prices which you've bought, more or less, you know, roughly speaking. In other words, yeah, you've got a big bunch of Bitcoin and the price now is, let's say, 100,000. 
So now what are you going to do to destroy Bitcoin? You're going to start selling. Okay, well, you know, you keep selling. The price keeps dropping. Things will change in the market. But, you know, by the time you're done selling, the price goes back to where roughly around where you were when you started buying. So it's, it's a much more open and free market. And therefore, I think the ability to manipulate it is far more limited. How do you respond to the Keynesian argument that in a deflationary currency system, there'll be less risk-taking? Um, and, and just general, they're sort of uh, anathema to, to deflation. I would say that effectively, they're correct in identifying the mechanism of people spending less under a deflationary money, what they call deflationary money, but let's put that aside. But yeah, they're correct that, yes, people will spend less, but they're incorrect in thinking that people spending less is a bad thing. And that, of course, is a function of their complete ignorance of the structure of capital in an economy. And I mean this sincerely. I don't just mean it as an insult. Well, it is an insult, but I'm saying it. <laughs> I sincerely mean it. Uh, I don't insult gratuitously. It's always well-deserved. But effectively, you know, Keynesian economics does not have a theory of capital. It has no idea about where capital comes from. Capital is just a blob that is there, that exists. And, you know, you can make more capital by creating investment, which government can just do by lowering interest rates. There's no idea of where capital comes from in a real sense, which in Austrian theory, you know, there's a whole entire theory of the structure of capital. Capital goods, are produced and what happens as we move from just producing commercial uh, consumer goods immediately for immediate consumption in other words hunting the fish with your own hand the moment you move towards building a fishing net or building a fishing rod or a boat or, or to make fishing more sophisticated and more productive you started in capital production right so that's capital production you're making the process of production longer and so as the process of production long, gets longer and longer, you start making more sophisticated and earlier, earlier stages of production. You start making capital for early stages and later stages. And so we start getting producing things that are used to produce consumer goods. And the longer the time horizon of a society or the lower the time preference of a society, the longer the time horizon, the longer the structure of production becomes, and the more people are able to produce for the long term. What happens when we start consuming less is that we are lowering our time preference. So what we're doing is that we're telling the market, stop making us consumer goods. Instead, we do, stop making us consumer goods to buy today for 10 bucks. Instead, take those resources and go make us a produce a capital good today that can be used towards making a consumer good for me next year that I will buy for 11 bucks because I will have invested in it and there will be return or 11 bucks if you want in, in, in real value increase. In other words, the ability to delay gratification, to lower your time preference and to be future oriented, just like in your personal life, what that does is, you know, instead of going out and getting drunk and wasting all of your money, let's say tonight, and you end up saving your money and not getting drunk and thinking of the long term. And then you reap the rewards of that in the long term. And that you don't wake up broken, hungover tomorrow. You wake up like a normal human being and you can get to work and be productive, right? It's the ability to save and invest will cause not a collapse in the economy as Keynesians imagine because they don't have any idea about how the structure of capital works because they don't see that part of the economy because Keynes 
never worked a day in his life properly, you know, as a proper job. He was just always flouncing around from one glorious appointment to another. You know, he, he, you think about the structure of production of people who work, you know, the more you defer consumption, the longer our structure of production becomes, the more capital we accumulate, the more productive society becomes, the higher the returns on our labor become. And so this is, this is this is really how you want how how you would like to live as an economy. You know, you want to have more capital accumulation. It's not because people are greedy capitalists, because quite literally, the difference is of, of between having more and less capital is the difference of life and death. You know, it's uh, it's about being able to withstand natures and disasters. It's about being able to uh, cure people from basic diseases. You need this capitalist structure of production, or else you know. We, uh, modern society, modern life is completely untenable and impossible. And it leads to, and, and you know, the collapse of the structure of production leads to places falling apart like Venezuela today. You know, this is what happens when you destroy the capitalist structure of production. So, in terms of risk taking, now what they'll say is, uh, well, people have to take risk. Well, people now don't have to take risk. People are being made to make dangerous risk because they don't have a nest egg of savings to fall back on. And this is, I think, a major problem. Because we don't have a form of money, there is no such thing as money that is good money, that is hard money, because the free market effectively in money is uh, government monopoly. Because of that, you as an individual, you are not able to have a, a reliable store of value. Even gold doesn't really work very well because governments control a big, big chunk of it and governments can confiscate um, whenever there's a problem with it. So gold doesn't quite work. And if you put your money in your government's money in a checking account, you know, you're not keeping up with inflation. So if you want to keep up with inflation, you have to go into effectively gambling, which is, you know, getting into this entire financial industrial complex of bonds and stocks and derivatives and commodities. You know, people are planning for the retirement by buying copper and oil and euros and Japanese yens and all these. It's, it's, it's an absurd idea if you think about it. Why should somebody be investing in that? But the point is, you know, the, there's this just entire circus, if you want, this, this labyrinth hall of people running around trying to beat inflation effectively. And on the other hand, what I, what I, what I think people don't understand is that the alternative to having this you know, this is not adding investments to us. This is creating bubbles. This is just taking monetary demand instead of having monetary demand being in money so that everybody can have their nest egg of savings that they can live off for a few years in case they have hardship. They will have that in a sound money that holds its value. And then all the money that they have on top of that, they will invest it. But being, you know, because you have your nest egg, people will have savings. On top of, you know, people will start saving money on top of that and will use that to effectively invest in themselves. And so instead of being in debt, you have your own savings as money. And then you, whatever extra money you have, you know, you can take a lot of risk with because you have that safety net, you know, that you have the safety net of that money. Effectively. That's, that's really the key thing. So. If, if we had a sound form of money, I think people would be far more entrepreneurial. And I think, you know, if you look at the 19th century, it's not fashionable to say nice things about the 19th century because, you know, the future always has its own propaganda and we want to believe that the future is the best. 
future that was possible ever, and it's better than ever. But to a large extent, the 20th century is the product of the technologies of the 19th century. And these technologies were financed by people who had low time preference, who had a long time horizon, who would plan for the future for the long term. And I think that's completely inseparable from having a standard universal unit of account that all these countries, other, all the countries in the world effectively were using. I want to talk about mining a little bit. How, how do you think about miners' incentives after the block rewards run out? I think miners' incentives are, uh, the way that we think, look at things in terms of Austrian economics is that value drives the cost of production. This is another major difference between the Austrians and the Keynesians or the Marxists or whatever. They generally tend to think that there's inherent value and that value is objective and that the cost of production determines the value of things. But Austrians understand that the value determines the cost of production. So if people are willing to pay $1 for an apple, then the price of an apple will tend towards that price. Or if that's, you know, depending on people's valuation of it, producers will continue to produce and they'll produce at that price level. If people won't, you know, if people will pay $2 for an apple because valuation rises, apple because people subjectively start valuing apples more, producers will produce more apples, okay? And if it drops to half a dollar, they'll produce fewer apples. And so the cost of production of the marginal apple will vary along with the valuation people give to it, okay? So how is this relevant to Bitcoin? The way that I see it is that the valuation of Bitcoin is reflected in the block rewards currently. You know, the reason that miners want the Bitcoin coins is because these are rewards that they can sell onto the market. But then, if people, and, and that's because people value Bitcoin. So if people value Bitcoin, people will pay for the coins. Then that allows the miners to invest. But also, if for me, it follows that if people value Bitcoin, they will transact on the Bitcoin network. And so if they value Bitcoin, they will also pay transaction fees. So the valuation will set the cost of production in both cases. Currently, because people value Bitcoin, price of Bitcoin rises, and the miners invest as much energy and electricity and processing power as is profitable, as much as they can to stay profitable. So generally, the cost of producing a Bitcoin roughly runs around the cost of a Bitcoin. And so I see no reason why this relationship would stop as it transitions towards being a fee market. And we've seen the fee market begin to develop, and we've seen people pay ridiculous transaction fees, or what people call ridiculous transaction fees of $20 or $50 or whatever. But I think in the future, we're going to see Bitcoin transactions are going to rise much more in value. I think it's not out of the ordinary, not out of the question. And I would say it's likely that we'll end up with something like a $1,000 transaction fee per Bitcoin transaction. Which might sound insane for, you know, early Bitcoin enthusiasts, but I think, you know, when you, it's not going to be $1,000 transaction because some guy's buying a cup of coffee. It's going to be a settlement payment between one bank and the other. And each one of those banks is effectively sandwiching in 10,000 payments into that final settlement payment. So imagine my country's bank versus your country's bank settling the end of day balance between one another. Yeah, that would be worth it if they could just pay $1,000 and settle the whole thing in less than an hour without having to trust anybody. Yeah, th this is this is how I see this evolving. So I think uh, I think that the transfer, the transaction fee market 
is likely to develop and take care of take care of the miners' rewards. And if the transaction fee market can't develop and there's no transaction fees, that means people don't want to hold Bitcoin, and therefore that means that Bitcoin has failed. So, but you know, the, it it won't be the transaction fee issue that fails. It's just in the same way that if people stop valuing Bitcoin right now, then the coins become worth less and less and less. And then the miners don't have an incentive to invest in the network, and then it falls apart. But fundamentally, what drives both is the valuation, is how people value Bitcoin. And so that's why, for me, I, I don't see it as a, a, a as a major problem. I don't, I don't think there's a problem there, because I think if if people continue to value Bitcoin, they have to transact. And if they have to transact, they'll pay a transaction fee, and it will be worth it, I think. Right. And what about uh, trade deficits between countries that have you know, either high production or high consumption of, of Bitcoin. And, and maybe you can describe a little bit of how, how you see the impossible trinity, you know, free capital cash flows, independent monetary policy, fixed exchange rates applying to applying to Bitcoin. We, well, uh, where do I start? In terms of the deficits, the way that I see it, a good way of thinking of this is Switzerland has practically zero gold production, no gold mines in Switzerland. And yet Switzerland has maybe the most gold per country in the world. I don't know if it does or what, but, you know, I'm sure it has a lot of gold. And even under the gold standard years, you know, they developed a huge surplus of gold. And they, banks were always attracting gold from all over the world. So the point of money, the point of hard money and why hard money is good, as I was saying earlier about gold mining, is that it's money that, the, you know, the harder it is, the more likely it is that you can only get it through working hard or through serving others. So... I find the idea that we're going to get rich by mining Bitcoin to be as sort of wrong as thinking, you know, we're going to rich, get rich by mining gold. It's, you know, as a country, if you're trying to fix your trade deficit or trying to fix your imbalanced budget or whatever, you need to get your house together, get your economic house in order, figure out your economic policies so that you're not carrying out destructive economic policies. And then these problems will fix themselves. You know, that's the way that I think about this. So I find it pointless for a government to think, you know, we're going to build the strategic reserves of Bitcoin so that then we settle the, uh, so that we always have a balanced surplus. Because effectively, you know, producing Bitcoin is going to be a market cost, and it's going to be an effectively, uh, it, it's it's a market where people are always competing by developing the more developed. Uh, miners and electric supplies and so it's just any industry like any other you know there's you, you get in there's a possibility of loss there's a possibility of uh, profit but there's nothing magical about it because the possibility of loss and profit is there so you can make bitcoin by mining bitcoin or you can make bitcoin by any other kind of job out there and it, uh, you know uh, sure i, I think the, the mining industry is just going to grow towards hyper specialized companies that handle it and manage it and execute, I think. Two questions, which I'll merge into one. So one is, I'm curious, what you see as sort of the most credible threat to Bitcoin? Or, you know, what facts would change your mind about anything uh, that's going on with, with Bitcoin, even whether it's more positive or, or, or less positive? And then lastly, uh, you know, some people, we sort of alternate between people saying we're sort of, we're heading to a post-capitalism capitalism era, and some people saying, no, 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 this is actually about to be the most capitalist era we've ever seen, you know, hyper-capitalism. And I'm curious where you stand on that and, and what that means. And 
I think the, the biggest threat to Bitcoin, I would say, is uh, node centralization. If the number of uh, nodes begins to drop precipitously in Bitcoin, then the decentralization of Bitcoin becomes more and more at risk. And if the decentralization of Bitcoin is gone, then Bitcoin is basically pointless. So as long as nodes numbers stay high, currently I think you know it's really hard to estimate how many nodes there are, but it's probably somewhere between ten thousand and a hundred thousand. But you know, not we we don't really know how many exactly exist. It's kind of complicated. But you know, if that number drops below a thousand, I think that's a major major problem. And so it's, that's why it's essential that the cost of running a Bitcoin node continues to be low enough that a basic computer and a basic home computer and uh, a home bandwidth connection could be able to run it. And so that is the uh, the threat. The most serious threat, though, in terms of economics, I'm not I'm not a technical expert, and I'm not going to talk a lot about the. the technical threats to Bitcoin, I think that's not my forte, but I think the, what I always say is that the problem with all of the scenarios of attack against Bitcoin is that they don't take into account economic incentives, or the, the reason they don't materialize is that economic incentives are stacked against them, even though technically they may be possible, economically they are just extremely expensive. And so the, the the fuel that keeps Bitcoin going is the economic incentives of Bitcoin. It's how Bitcoin continues to operate and continues to basically bribe everybody to keep it feeding it <laughs> and making it grow. That's that's in my opinion the uh, the real fuel of Bitcoin, and that's because people find economic value in it, and that's because we don't have sound money. Because that's my value proposition for Bitcoin. So I would say the real threat to Bitcoin would be if credible sound money alternatives develop. And so if governments want to kill Bitcoin, I think the best strategy to do so would be to return to the gold standard and to offer everybody free markets in banking. If everybody could have a free choice in whatever bank they could choose, and we had a true free free market in banking, and government didn't control banking as an industry, and it was just a free market, I think that destroys Bitcoin's value proposition. That reduces the value that we can get from Bitcoin. But, you know, don't count on that happening anytime soon. It's not extremely likely. But if it does end up happening, if governments do reinstitute the gold standard because they're afraid of Bitcoin, I mean, I will consider it, even if Bitcoin dies after that, you know, it will be a moral victory for Bitcoin. This is what Bitcoin was for. (laughs) And and what about the the idea of we're heading towards a post-capitalism era or we're heading towards a hyper-capitalist era? I, th- I think people use that word in many complicated ways that don't make a lot of sense. And people need to stop that. Um, read Ludwig von Mises. Capitalism has a very clear definition. Capitalism is a system of economic production in which people accumulate capital, in which people are free to accumulate capital. So anybody who talks about post-capitalism, or who wants to live in a society that has gone out of capitalism, you know, they can't, they not only need to go live out in the wild, in the wilderness, they can't even, you know, choose to wear any clothes on them or use any spear because that's what capitalism is. Capitalism is our ability to accumulate capital goods. And without capital goods, you know, if you choose to live your life without any kind of capital goods, you're massively, massively inconveniencing yourself, to put it mildly. So, you know, we rely on this notion of capital production. We rely on this extremely elaborate 
thousands of years old system of capital accumulation and production for our basic survival. And so, you know, uh, any anytime somebody has tried to destroy that because of their stupid uh, economic theories that uh, they had learned, whether it's the Marxist or whatever, you know, the consequences were extremely devastating. So it's not, you know, I know it's cool to go around in college campuses and talk about destroying capitalism and all of that stuff, but really, um, it, it makes no sense. It's uh, it, it's an insane uh, kind of uh, suicidal death wish, which, you know, I have no problem with people who want to do that if they want to do it for themselves. You know, the the parts of the world that are uninhabited and free of capitalism are much larger than the parts of the world that are inhabited. So, you know, the, the problem is that they want to live in modern capitalist society while trying to take capitalism away from others. You know, they want to live in civilization while trying to deny people the chance to live in a system of that allows them to have that civilization. On that note, Safe, this has been a fantastic episode. The book is The Bitcoin Standard. Read it now if you, if you haven't yet. It's a, it's a must read. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. This has been a lot of fun too. Thank you so much for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.